Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to April's podcast. I hope you all are doing very, very well. I am down in New Orleans as I speak, prepping Into the Badlands, which is uh, this amazing new series for AMC. And I look forward to telling you many uh, wonderful things about this and you going on this incredible creative journey alongside me. We have a very cool onset with Shane kind of scenario set up with tons of locations pictures that I've been taking, as well as all the different equipment and everything that we're using to be able to bring this uh, wonderful new TV series in this world that really no one has ever seen before to life. And I thought it would be fitting, since I'm starting this whole Into the Badlands, about cameras and the tool that I am selecting to uh, shoot on this TV series, I thought it would be great to do a podcast on all the camera questions that we have received over the last six months. I'm going to start it off with this first question. How much image manipulation is done with the footage that comes from the C500? When you spoke of the 5D Mark II footage that was used on Active Valor, it seemed like a lot of post was necessary to make an image suitable for the big screen. Dark energy, you had mentioned. You moved on to the Cinema EOS cameras when the Mark III came out, so so I also wonder what your thoughts are on the image that comes from the 5D Mark III. Okay, so what manipulation is done with the footage that comes from the C500? Need for Speed is a perfect example of you taking a camera that really no one had really shot with much and kind of taking that image and trying to do as many camera tests as you possibly can to really understand what this camera is all about and how it works and what it can do, what it can't do, all these things. Tests are great and they get you into the ballpark of where and knowing your boundaries. But again, when you are in the heat of it, when you are in those trenches and the sun is setting and the weather is turning and all these things start to happen, this is when the camera really shows itself for what it is. And you also learn a ton down this road. Active Valor, I describe working with the 5D Mark II as every day I woke up, I punched myself in the face, I hit my head uh, with a shovel, and then I was buried alive with this technology because there was no type of system that had ever worked with this small little DSLR. We were literally trailblazing on the spot, building stuff, building base plates, building mounts, building all these different 
systems to try and turn this into somewhat of a movie-making device. And it was incredibly difficult, and we failed every day. The C500 was exactly that same scenario. We put together a system that once we finally got the go-ahead and the approval for the movie, and then the C500s came rolling in, there was no system. There was a lot of third-party players that had kind of designed systems for the C500, but nothing that was robust, nothing that was really beefy and and could make a movie at 180 miles an hour suspended off the side of a car. I just didn't feel that they were there. They were great for, you know, one-man banders and, and people shooting weddings and, and documentaries, but it wasn't there for the movie-making clientele. So we literally had to engineer a system from the ground up. And we did it through Element Technica that built all these power bases and sliding base plates and everything to try and take this small little plastic camera with a lot of buttons and turn it into something that could take some abuse and that could be slung off the side of a car at 150 miles an hour and hold up. And once we did that, we realized that, okay, yes, this is possible. But the biggest thing that came from from it was, I think, more than anything, was the whole gist of understanding that this camera and this color space and trying to listen to all the people at Canon and what they had suggested we do. Uh, one of the big things that sold me down the river with this was they had told me that uh, you wanted to expose your medium gray card, your 18% gray, at around 32 IRE. Well, what that ended up doing, and I believe them, based on my test, we had gone down that path, but then I had exposed it a lot hotter, but then I was finding my day exteriors and interiors and everything were very challenged, so I started underexposing the image a lot to be able to try and hold the highlights that with this camera clip immediately. It doesn't have a beautiful roll-off uh, like the Red Dragon sensor or the Area Alexa. It rolls off beautifully into the highlights and doesn't feel video in its clip. With the C500, it goes to a point and then it just falls off a cliff, which is uh, the clip factor. And it looks very video and it looks pretty much like a video camera. The Cinema EOS line was designed by Canon where you took all the innovation with the still sensor division and then you had all the geeks in the digital video camera division and you kind of collided them together to design the Cinema EOS series. And what you found was there were a lot of holdovers from the sensor and how it reacted that felt very much like a video camera. I found that the best way to try and handle this is we had to underexpose because it clipped so quickly. But with that came a lot of noise. And this camera is not noisy if you expose it correctly. This camera needs light. So once we started giving it a ton of light, it started to come alive. But that was only after Need for Speed was completed. Fathers and Daughters, I shot on the C500, which was my second movie on the C500, and I exposed that at 50 to 60 IRE in the middle gray, and it performed incredibly well. And it was so clean, and there was not one underexposed shot in the whole movie. Now, on Need for Speed, there was probably 2,700 underexposed shots. And what we had to do is, with Dark Energy, we had to go in there, we had to denoise all of it, and then be able to add a texture on top of it that felt very filmic. This is exactly what I did with the Mark II on Active Valor, and what I've done with almost anything that I've shot with a DSLR. Now, the Mark III was not a specifically good camera. I never understood why they created it. I never understood what and where their headspace was with this. I'm not the brains of the camera manufacturers. I'm an artist saying and trying to understand what this tool can do and how I can use it. And I found that I really couldn't use it that much. I felt it was much harsher than the 5D Mark II. It didn't roll off as beautifully into the, the shadows as well as it didn't roll off as beautifully into the highlights. So it became more of a video looking image 
for me. So the Mark III was not something that I really deployed. If I was shooting with a C300 or a C500, I was using either GoPros or the Canon 1DC to be able to do my smaller, very intimate stuff instead of a Mark III. The 1DC rolled off uh, a little better. It felt more like the Canon C500 and it had the log file, which gave me a lot more range and color correction. So that's where I really honed my direction and focus on. Let's say I'm shooting a commercial and I'm doing kind of the same kind of stuff I did on Need for Speed where I'm all this stuff and I only have to deliver in 1080, I would probably shoot C500 at 2K because 2K looks far superior to 4K. I would make sure that my CP locked is eliminated and you go with my SIC number two, which takes the CP lock and dials out all the sharpening because Canon adds this sharpening that is very not good in the post process. It creates a ton of aliasing and weirdness that that you do not want to see. I would, on top of that, shoot with a C100 on rig shots. Uh, there's no reason to do DSLRs. The C100 is the DSLR killer. The Mark II has the same color space as the C500. It debears exactly like the C500, giving yourself 2K stabilization options for your hero camera and then your rig shots being on C100s. That's the way I would go about it if I was asked to do a commercial via night exteriors, that kind of thing. Because the Canon still rules the night, pretty much. The Vericam is, has come in with this new 5000 ISO, which looks very clean and uh, kind of reboots the whole sliding scale. So you now have 14 stops of latitude at 5000 ISO. That camera really seems to shine at the 5000. But again, I loved what the Canon did for me where I used a lot of available light on Need for Speed and all the night driving sequences. So I would opt, if I had a night deal, I would probably opt to shoot Canon or anything that was done with night. And if I'm doing the day stuff, I would definitely go Dragon, the Red Dragon for all of that. Uh, just with these tests and everything that I've been doing, the extensive tests on the Red Dragon, there is not a better camera to do day exteriors with. This camera is just blows the Alexa away. It's color depth. I'm looking at 15 and a half stops of latitude, no problem. And uh, it enables you to light so naturally and so beautifully without a lot of assistance. And with that gains speed. And uh, into the Badlands, we are going with the Red Dragon as well as the Red Weapon. And these are the camera of choice because it's going to increase my speed and deliver the look that we specifically want for Into the Badlands. Moving on to the next question. Number two. Hi, Shane. I loved your presentation at Sun Studios here in Sydney. I'm shooting on the Red Dragon since June this year, and I'm pretty impressed with the new sensor. Admittedly, it's not great in low light like the C500, but I'm exposing at 250 ASA and getting tremendous results. I shot surfers up at Coves Harbor and Bright Sun where the boiling white water seemed massively overexposed, but all the highlight detail was there to be found in the grade. I was wondering if you could talk about your impressions testing the Dragon sensor. Well, my impressions with this camera is kind of uh, what I answered in the first question is there's not a better camera out there in regards to day exteriors. And the big thing, and this is where you'll see with these extensive tests, what's so enlightening and so amazing is to not have to expose a camera at a 800 ISO just to be able to get the maximum amount of latitude. Because even when you do go to 800 on the Alexa, I wouldn't shoot it. I shot it at 320 for day exteriors because I just couldn't deal with how noisy it was when it went into the shadows and when it was underexposed a little bit. I just didn't like the look of it. So at 320, I slid the scale and brought it to like a 13 stops of latitude, 13 and a half stops of latitude, and I was fine with that. But with the Red Dragon, you get 15 and a half stops of latitude with the skin tone OLPF filter on. I expose it at 320. Now, 
this person is exposing at 250, no problem. 250, 320, these are where you want to be using a camera during the day exteriors. I mean, I look back at how I used to, when I was shooting film, I never used 250. I never used 800. I used 50 ISO or ASA as it was called. The Terminator Salvation, my God, I'd say 60% of that film that is day exteriors is all shot at 50 ASA. Getting a camera that actually responds and gives you 15 and a half stops of latitude at 250 or 320 ASA is absolutely huge. And this is what I found. It just holds the highlights so beautifully. I had a scenario where in the test, we backlight a model and we barely think it was like seven or eight stops of difference between the frontal light on her face compared to no nine stops, the hot sky and the hot clouds in the background. And the camera completely held the blue cyan sky, it held the hot clouds, and it gave us a perfect exposure on her face. These are the things that are going to increase your speed as a cinematographer and uh, enable you to light and fill in a way that looks very realistic and not like it's lit because you're trying to balance their faces based on hot overexposed sky. It's incredible what you can bring back on this camera. And what I've been doing is creating new LUTs. The more I work with the Dragon, the more LUTs I'm creating, and I will be sharing those with all of you. We're designing a specific LUT for Into the Badlands that is not a LUT that's doing the jacked up look that I'm actually going to be going for, but something that just balances this camera out so the reds respond to red, the warms respond to warm, the blues or cyans respond to those, and it takes out that green cast that comes naturally from the sensor and just makes it more of an even palette for you to now make your first strokes and paint. This is going to be a LUT that will be available that you can put into monitors. Everyone is suggesting for me to build it for the red in a red gamma space, and I'm going to play with that in our prep to see if I can do it. But right now, I'm very confident with this LUT that I'm creating to put on my flange monitor and be able to go with that. Yes, this dragon is an incredible sensor and I'm loving it every time I go out and lens with it. Let's move on to the next question. Hi Shane, I'm working with the Canon C300, 1DC, and Mark III's. My question is, do you have any tips, tricks, or pitfalls to watch out for? For example, one thing that comes to mind is how sharp the C300 is with tight patterns that would be passable with the 1DC or the Mark III. Now that is absolutely correct. Again, we created the picture profiles that you can purchase online in Shane's store called SIC1 and SIC2. SIC2 is basically the Canon cinema profile, which is this kind of flat log file. But I go in there and just alter a couple things so it helps get rid of the banding in the sky, as well as I alter some things so I get rid of a lot of the sharpness. This helps extremely with moray patterns and any kind of brick patterns and all these things that we had as a problem with the Mark II doing all these morays and everything. The 1DC still morays pretty badly. The Mark III is much better because it has an incredible anti-aliasing and moray filter on it, which makes it a little softer and contrastier, which is what really kind of was the, the change for me with the Mark II to the Mark III. They put on that anti-aliasing filter, so it helped with, with moray and brick patterns and all that kind of stuff, but it softened the image, so they tried to bump up and make it a faster data rate to try and offset that, but the OLPF filter that they're using, uh, the anti-aliasing, really kind of made everything incredibly contrasty. You just didn't get the detail that you would in the blacks that you used to get on the Mark II. And that was one thing that I found specifically from this new iteration of the Mark III. Yes, these new picture profiles will absolutely help in that. Now, the SIC1 has uh, kind of a picture profile that requires very little color correction. It balances everything pretty nicely, and I have it based on uh, giving a little more gold in skin tones because I like yellow. 
That's my prerogative. That's what I'm putting out there. That is my look. You can decide to dial a little yellow out, obviously, in the uh, post-color correction process, but that's kind of where I like to be. Pitfalls of the 1DC is just the moray factor. We had uh, problems with it on need for speed, like the radiator area, the grill would definitely moray very quickly. We couldn't do any hard mounts with it. If the hard mount was not locked, down like incredibly well, like literally a hunk of cement. The jello effect was was pretty intense, so we stayed away from that. The Mark III tended to handle the jello effect much better. I went with C100s and C300, C500s on hard rigs because I just the whole rolling shutter and, and everything about it seemed to work much more effectively with the Cinema EOS lines than dealing with DSLRs. What other pitfalls would I have to say? The 1DC requires light just like the C300, C100, C500. You don't want to expose middle gray at 30. You want a middle gray more in the 50 range and skin tones, 55 to 65 for, you know, light coming through a window, sun hitting their face, these kind of things. It just likes light. When you underexpose it, it gets very noisy, incredibly quick. And, you know, you just have to work with the clip factor on the camera to be able to get to that exposure. You have to do a lot of manipulation to get there. And this is why I've slid out of the Cinema EOS line and gone to the Red Dragon now that it actually delivers the color red and delivers skin tones that I absolutely love. Uh, it's like, why fight the 12 stops of latitude when you can have 15 and a half stops and beautiful skin tones? Again, it's, it's using the tool that will help and assist your creation. You know, on Need for Speed, the C500 was absolutely the right tool. The Dragon was not out at that point. The Alexa was not anything I really enjoyed. And the C500 was very small, very compact, and uh, thought I felt would deliver the look and feel of what Need for Speed was all about. Next question. Shane, your camera tests are fantastic. I will spend all day on one. With so many variables on a camera test, how do you know you're seeing what you are testing? Obviously, you want to eliminate as many variables as possible, but how can you tell if things like color and contrast are coming from the lens or the camera? Or if fall-off, gradation, noise is attributed by the sensor or the compression? Or if the camera's sweet spot is in the sensor or the aperture of the lens on it? That kind of thing. Thanks of being here for us. Well, thank you very much for that. And I appreciate all of your kind words. I'm doing these so, and I'm trying to factor in as many variables as possible. But the one variable that you cannot do is if you are doing a camera test, you have to pick one lens and do that with the whole set. So if you're saying I'm going to do it on the Canon Cinema Zooms, then I'm going to be using those for the whole test of whatever camera that is. If I'm doing a camera test and I'm doing with primes, then I'm using the same prime set. Obviously, the newer lenses are much better color matched than back in the day when all the glass was handmade. I remember going in and dealing with the C and, and E anamorphics in Panavision and you'd get some that are yellow as hell and some that are, are blue and some that are, I mean, they're all over the map. Contrast, all different. This is handmade lenses. This is awesome as well. The old Ultra Primes that Zeiss made that were Panavision mount, these were fascinating lenses and I shot Greatest Game, Semi-Pro, We Are Marshall, something new on these lenses and the look of these lenses are pretty incredible, but you have to go through like, you know, I went through 20 sets to find a very balanced three sets so I could make all these movies with them. The 40 mil was unusable. And it was, you know, 40 mil is one of my favorite lenses to use. I couldn't even use that damn thing. It was just so yellow, like the yellowest yellow you had ever seen. And I'm a yellow fan. These are the things that back in the day, you had to find the lenses that all matched. Now with computers and us taking the making lenses by hand out of the mix, they're much more consistent. Take your lens and hold that. And that's what you have to go off of is your gradation 
illumination or the color and contrast of the sensor. These are things that I try to choose the lens that I really like the most, and I do my tests off of those. If I'm a big Cook S4 Prime guy, then I'm going to do my tests on the Cook S4 Prime. If I feel that I'm in a Leica mood, then I'm going to do them with Leica. If this job is going to be Canon, then I do it with Canon. I at least try to set that as the benchmark and as the thing that does not change. And then I go for taking the results based on that, trying to keep the lens absolutely consistent as well as trying to take all the light meter readings and making sure that everything is spot on and as close to accurate as possible. The fall off and gradation and noise, well, that's only going to be lens, a fall off and gradation. That's going to be the on the edges and stuff like that. If you're talking about how it, it falls off into the black or how it overexposes into the highlights, well, that's going to be mainly sensor-based. I mean, obviously the lens, lower contrast lenses are going to hold the overexposure and the underexposure a little better. Yes, those will factor into the equation, but again, it's picking that lens that you think will be the right lens for your creation and then going with that. And obviously those results are going to be the closest to what you're going to see on the big screen or the small screen based on you making that as the thing that does not change. The camera having a sweet spot in the center or the aperture of the lens on it. Well, again, I'm a guy that really loves to shoot at a T2 most of the time. If I'm day exteriors, I'm at a T2. If I'm night exteriors, I'm at a T2. If I'm day interiors, I'm at a T2. It really doesn't change. I love that depth of field. I love the way the bokeh looks in the background. Everything about it, I really enjoy. When I'm shooting action, like stuff really in your face, a drama, I'll shoot the whole thing at a T2. If I'm doing action, then I'll probably bump it up to a 2.8, 2.8.5. I really never want to go to a 4. So that's kind of the, the sweet spot for me. And I will test at those sweet spots. I will be at a T2. Or if I feel this movie is going to be more on the action-based side, then I'm going to be doing my lenses at a 2.8.5. Is what I did for Into the Badlands. I knew we had a ton of fighting. This martial arts that is in this film. I knew there was going to be a lot of that. So I thought, okay, perfect. I'll shoot most of the, the test at a two eight and a half, so I can really see what the depth of field is, how it feels when I go to a tighter lens, what the bokeh looks like, how that depth of field feels, and you get the feeling of the sweet spot of that lens as well as the sweet spot of your sensor. The Red Dragon, these new tests that, we're, that we've already released by the time you get this podcast really dives into exactly what the sweet spot of the sensor is and how I expose it and how I react to both of the OLPF filters and which one I feel looks really good and, and which one I wouldn't use for specific applications. Next question, Shane, I would like to hear your explanation on shutter angles coming from the DSLR use versus traditional cinema cameras. Do you have any cheat sheets? I'm using a Blackmagic pocket camera and it has shutter angle settings. Thanks so much, Thomas. Yeah, so with the DSLR world, everything was a 150th of a second because there wasn't the shutter speed of 180 degree shutter, which 150th is very close to that. All the main movies that you've seen throughout your life has been shot at 180 degree shutter. Take Drumline, for example. If any of you have seen that movie, when I went into the performances where I really wanted to jack up the intensity of the, of the drums and have that staccato feel where you just felt everything was so sharp and so crisp, I shot that at a 45 degree shutter, which would be equivalent to about a, let's say, a 1 200th of a second on a DSLR. Or you could set your shutter speed on your Blackmagic pocket camera to a 45 degree shutter, and that would give you that wonderful staccato feel. If you take Janusz Kaminski's um, Saving Private Ryan, he shot that a lot at 11 degree shutter as well as a 22 degree shutter. Now, when you do narrow the shutter, think of it as this big pinwheel. And 180 degree shutter sees the 
180 degree of a, a piece of pie. And that's what the sensor is seeing. When you narrow it to 90 degrees, then the sensor is only seeing 90 degrees of it, and we're shutting 270 degrees of its view off. And as you narrow it to a 45 degree wedge, now you're decreasing it even more. Let's take the drumline example. If I'm hitting a drum with a drumstick, at 180 degree shutter, I'm seeing the, dr the drumstick when I raise my hand, I'm seeing it just an inch down, another 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 inch down, till I impact the drum head. With a 45 degree shutter, I'm seeing it at the height, you know, up in the air. I'm seeing it at three to four inches down and then hit the drum head. So I'm only seeing it in three positions where the other one I was probably seeing it in seven or eight positions. So that creates the staccato feel because you're taking out the motion blur that you get with a 180 degree shutter. So now you're only seeing it in three places where it takes away the motion blur and it just looks crisp. With Saving Private Ryan, they did like 11 degree shutter, which, oh my God, that is super crisp. That's why when the sand blew up with those mortars and everything in the mines, you know, that sand just looked, there was no motion blur on it at all. The sand granules just looked so crisp and so sharp and so clean. This was based on that specific shutter angle. Using these, I find that with film, the shutter speed looked very, very cool when you adjust your shutter angles. With digital, it doesn't look as cool unless you have a global shutter or a mechanical shutter on your camera. So I think the Blackmagic Ursa has a global shutter. Obviously the F65 has a mechanical shutter and then at a specific frame rate, it goes to a global shutter or you can make it be any either of all of those either no shutter global shutter or mechanical shutter there's other cameras the uh you can put the motion mount on the red dragon and that gives it a global shutter the global shutter helps this kind of effect that if you're trying to go for the staccato feel of drumline or the intense battle sequences of saving private ryan a global shutter motion mount style of a camera is going to give you a better quality image in feeling the most filmic with that shutter angle. You know, because I love lightning. If you've seen any of my older music videos, I was obsessed with the lightning, obsessed with it. Being able to use lightning strikes, you really can't use them with any DSLRs because with the rolling shutter, the lightning strike hits and it only exposes a third or two thirds of the image. And then there's these bands of uh, underexposed or not exposed correctly with the rolling shutter. So when you use the dragon, you got to use a motion mount with any kind of lightning. The Alexa does it uh, as well. It will band not as badly, but it does. Those are the kind of things that you look for when you're doing these specific strobe scenes. Like if you're doing a, a dance club and it's not lightning, but it's strobes that are strobing different areas and everything, you definitely got to try to find that global shutter or mechanical shutter camera that's going to deliver that vision a little better because the rolling shutter thing will, will eat you alive. This is kind of the shutter angle perspective. I think we do did a little of it on Active Valor. We were at 1/100th, which I thought looked kind of cool for some of the end sequence when they're in El Centro, where all the cartel guys are kind of coming down and they trap them. So we used a little 1/100th of a shutter speed on that, and I was okay with it. But again, I was dabbling with it and learning and and trying to see what it felt like, and and uh, it was okay but it wasn't what I had remembered like when I used film with drumline and, uh, and other features that I used this kind of hyper shutter effect. All right, next question. Shane, I know you shoot with the 1DC, so I figured you would be an excellent person to ask. We have four 1DCs and four Odyssey 7Q monitors, and all of those devices, we noticed a slight push 
towards the green coming out of the 1DC HDMI port. Have you noticed this yourself? We've confirmed this with an external waveform vector scope as well. Just curious. I had a previous question submitted about the DSLR tips and pitfalls. So this is sort of a piggyback on that. Whoa, I'm answering both of your questions here. I didn't realize that. So the 41DC thing. Yeah, I love this camera, but I would never external record this thing ever. The HDMI port is wanky as hell. I've tried that two or three times and it's kind of failed me. So I'm all for just internal recording at 4K and then down resing it to 1080. I think that it works beautifully. I did uh, the ticket for an example. That is a 4K file that we down res to ProRes HQ 1080. And I absolutely love the look and feel of that. I don't think I would shoot that camera at 1080 ever. It's very soft. It just doesn't grab me for a camera shooting 1080. As a still camera, that thing is probably the best still camera that Canon has ever made, ever. It just is absolutely incredible. I could not believe how good the stills coming out of that camera were. Take the 1DC, shoot that baby at 4K, down res the 1080, and Bob's your uncle on that. I'm not, like I said, a big Odyssey 7Q fan in regards to the devices. Awesome, but I don't think the 1DC HDMI whole thing is, it's just a prosumer. It's not even prosumer. It's a consumer cable. And all these cameras that are still, when they came out with the C100, I could not believe that they put a HDMI port still in the C100 Mark II. I just boggled my mind where their headspace was at with that. I would suggest just shooting internally. The Canon log file is very, very good and gives you a ton of range to work in and the down res is absolutely beautiful. Next question. Tips for white balance without using a color meter. I'm shooting weddings and churches as a C100. The carpet is green and it's tinting the white walls. Then there is yellow sunlight coming in through the painted glass windows, also hitting the walls. And to add to all that, the lights are fluorescent in the ceiling. The C100 custom white balance seems to never be accurate. Love your blog. I find it so refreshing. All this knowledge that I search so deep for on the web, but rarely find, is provided here. Thanks for your time, professionalism, and dedication. Well, thank you for these wonderful and kind words. It's so much fun talking with all of you and really, you know, helping everyone along down this process. Sharing is incredible. I had amazing mentors when I was coming up the ladder and I moved up the ladder very fast because I had great mentors. That's what the inner circle is all about. It is being those mentors like I had to just blast you up that ladder to success. I'm uh, really happy to do it. And I love all you and uh, what we represent and how powerful this incredible group is getting. What you described there was pretty close to being what I call the perfect storm of a colored contrast light. You got the yellow windows. You got the green coming from the fluorescence overhead. You have the carpet being green and tinting the white walls. You have all these. It's the perfect storm. I never auto white balance a camera ever. I find that it only paints yourself in a corner and it it just makes everything kind of neutral and in a, in a weird way. So when you auto white balance to try and take the green out, then you're magenting the windows and all of a sudden now the day light that comes through a door or a window is purpley blue. I mean, all these things start to happen with this wacky auto white balance. So what I do is I just pick a color temp and in that scenario, let me kind of talk you through it. So I got yellow sunlight coming through. I have the fluorescence overhead that they're probably going to be cool white fluorescence. I would probably balance at, I'd say 3,700 degrees. Anytime I'm under cool white fluorescence, I balance at 3,700 or 3,600. I'll just play with that to see where the green is, comes off as a minty blue-green, and that's something that you can easily spin with a little magenta in your color correction and be able to make it a little more white. The yellow cast, by going with 3700, that will warm up very nicely. Any windows or doors that don't have
have yellow in them are going to go a nice cool cyan blue outside that's where I balance sometimes I'll go up to 4200 but I'm I'm in that 37 to 4200 range depending on how yellow the light coming through the windows are and by using a 3700 degrees with the cool white fluorescents that usually are 4500 Kelvin sorry I keep I'm saying degrees but it's Kelvin but 3700 Kelvin the cool white fluorescents usually are like 4500 Kelvin then this makes the walls a little cleaner and a little whiter by going at that color temp the first part of advice is never auto white balance your camera and then just use the Calvin wheel and kind of scroll it and look at a monitor or look at the back LCD screen and just scroll it. That's what I do. I sit in the room and I'll just scroll it to see what looks the very best. When I did the ticket, if you look at that as an example, I went into the hospital. Those were cool white fluorescents in there. I spun it to 2,700 degrees, so it felt very cold and not so inviting. And then I took warm white fluorescents that were more around 3,200 degrees, and I put those through the uh, doorways. So all the rooms had a warmer tone and the hallways had a colder tone. Just do that color contrast shift. And these are the things that you kind of look for and try to just sit there and scroll that wheel. And when you scroll it, it really puts yourself in the right pocket. Again, auto white balancing, never. Look at the back LCD screen and, and uh, see where the colors kind of mix and mingle with your Calvin wheel and uh, then settle on something that you feel looks really good and go for it. Shane, thank you for creating this resource. I look forward to every post. I used your AOV picture style and absolutely love the look. How do you approach working with picture styles? Do you shoot to give yourself the most latitude in post or are there certain aspects you try and capture with the styles in camera? Corey. Well, the picture styles that you can purchase or that we are giving you uh, within the inner circle are based on taking the lens aspects. So if a Zeiss lens is a little colder and a little contrastier, then I alter that to be white. If a Leica lens is a little more yellow and a little more lower con, then I'm taking the yellow out and giving you white. If the Canon L-series gravitates towards the red and is the red pops a little more, then I'm sliding that scale and making it white. With the Nikon, it is a yellow glass as well, and I'm taking that yellow and sliding it out. It's a lower con lens as well, and I'm balancing the contrast. So every one of those picture profiles was designed because I, at the time when we shot Active Valor, we were shooting with all different lenses. This is whatever we could get our hands on. So it's like, like sometimes we had Leica, sometimes we had Zeiss ZEs, sometimes we had ZFs, sometimes we had the Canon L series, sometimes we shot with Nikon AI and AIS. It was all over the map. So what I had to do is work with the colorist and we designed these picture profiles that basically made everything as close to matching as possible. And that's what these picture profiles are designed to do. It's give you the most latitude without going to like a Technicolor cine style which just makes it so damn flat and it cuts your knees off with color depth. Cine style basically takes that image that is 8-bit and makes it like 6-bit. I'm trying to still hold on to the 8 bits that we have and then use these by altering the curves ever so slightly and dialing the different colors that each one of these lenses, their lens attribute in color and kind of balancing that so it gives you a completely white and the same type of contrast depending on lenses because the Zeisses are much contrastier than the Leicas. I'm lowering the contrast on the Zeiss and uh, keeping the contrast level kind of the same with the Leicas because I like where that falls in. These are the things that I did on these picture profiles and I would say this gives you a wonderful canvas for you to then, in color correction, paint. Now, the C100, C100 Mark II, C300, and eventually I'm getting the C500s up on the store and also we'll be offering those on the Inner Circle as well. These are set to do two things. 
SIC1 is to give you a look that is very close that you hardly need any color correction whatsoever. SIC2 is one that requires color correction, but slightly gets rid of some banding in the sky as well as a sharpening. And that is for you to have the most latitude and the most evenness of kind of the log file. That being your canvas, you can then paint. Hi Shane, many of us love the DSLR form factor and feel threatened that our beloved DSLRs will soon become obsolete. What are your current thoughts regarding the DSLR versus smartphones and mirrorless cameras? Thanks, Peter. I know a lot of people have said that the DSLR is dead and that it is going by the wayside. I only feel that that form factor is exactly where we're going to be whittling down to. Look at the Alexa Mini. Everything is getting squished down into this small box because that's what we want. We want a very small box that does all the beautiful computations and, and saves to an internal hard drive and, and gives us all this 15 and a half stops of latitude. That's the red dragon. It's this box and the weapon is even better and it's even a little smaller of a box. So these boxes are where it's headed. Designing these long cameras like the Alexa XT and the, Ale and the Scion and the Ursa, this is where we're not headed. So the DSLR is what we're all camera manufacturers are trying to achieve. And with like Murphy's Law, could go wrong, would go wrong. And sometimes the, the DSLR doesn't work, like the GH4, for example. This is a, a very compact camera, but unless you're shooting everything you ever want to shoot on a 200 ISO platform, then, then that camera is awesome. If you're wanting to do any other thing, it's just a noisy camera. We're having all these different DSLRs, and if the price points stay as low as they are, then I guess you'd buy three or four different DSLRs. You'd buy a Sony A7S, you'd buy a GH4, you'd buy a Canon 1DC. I mean, if you are a DSLR collector, then these are the different cameras that you would kind of uh, cluster bomb together. I see is all of the camera manufacturers trying to get to that small size, and with time, and engineering and technology, we will slowly build this thing into a smaller and smaller box. And uh, that's exciting as hell because it just means how we're gonna be able to use, move a camera is going to be very much like how you see it on Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed and Grand Theft Auto V. It's like, it's a virtual space that you can have the free reign to move the camera wherever the hell you want. Well, when all of a sudden it's a very small box, it really starts to extend your imagination even further. Last question. Shane, thank you very much for your investment in those of us that are learning the craft of cinematography. I was at your workshop in Charlotte and the workshop and masterclass in DC. Great times. You had mentioned about exposing for the Blackmagic Cinema Camera. Could you remind me of how you would expose for the sensor on the camera? Also, you had mentioned the issue that you faced with the Canon Kelvin color temperature settings, such as not using 56K and 3200K on the Canon cameras, but selecting a different Kelvin to get close to those temperatures. Thanks again for all that you do and love the pirate death ship, Ben. Well, thank you so much for coming to Charlotte and then again in D.C. It was wonderful meeting you. Uh, I remember you. And I, I think that when we talked about the Blackmagic camera, you know, that camera is once again a camera that needs light. It has what it's toted, 13 stops of latitude. So this camera can handle uh, nice, nice highlights. It's going to clip very quickly, though. So when it does get to that point, it falls off like a cliff. It rolls off a little better than the C500, C100, C300, and not as good as the Alexa. But it's very close. Its roll-off is very close to the Alexa. And uh, I have to say that giving it light is, is very important. I expose with my light meter with that camera. I try to do as much 
uh, understanding ratios. And I treat that very much like if I was uh, exposing 5298 film stock. I knew that three and a half to four stops in the underexposure was really good. On a woman, three stops was beautiful. On the fill ratio to key backlights, I would underexpose. Or if I really wanted a searing backlight, I've overexposed two or three, sometimes four stops. It was very much in the way of how I would expose for film. And I use my light meter when I shoot with that camera because it's really difficult to get any good lookup table that makes that camera's color space look good. It's funny because once you get in the color correction bay, that thing comes alive. It's incredible how impressive that color space is and what you can do with it once you get it in the zone. Use a light meter and give it light overexpose it like a half stop is where I always tried to uh, to overexpose. So if my key light was at a four, then I'd expose it to two, eight and a half. I, I always put it kind of in that range. Okay. Uh, the other part of your question was the Kelvin. So with Canon, I've, I've never been a big fan of putting it at 3200 or 5600 Kelvin. And the reason being is the DSLR, they base their white point at 5200 Kelvin. And I started doing this with the 5D Mark II on Active Valor, and I just loved the crispness and the slightly cooler tones by going to 5200 than 5600. And it gave me wonderful range, and I thought I got better color correction out of going at 5200. The same is true in the 3200 vein. If I'm exposing with practicals and tungsten light sources, I will be much more in the 34 to 3600 Kelvin because like most of all these cameras, they are daylight balance sensors. So I'm kind of tricking the camera to thinking that it's got a little more daylight than it should. I like the more red, yellow, golden skin tones. So by going to 3600 and using a tungsten based source that pushing it through a diffusion is probably 2900 to 3100 Kelvin. You get it around there, then it just warms it up and makes the skin tone a little more, I think, alive and really shows that vitality. All right. Well, that concludes this month's podcast, and I want to thank all of you again for everything that you do within the Inner Circle. Continue to please spread the word to your friends and to everyone telling them how powerful this resource is to all of you. I really appreciate that as well as I am about ready to embark on this incredible journey on Into the Badlands, and I cannot wait to share with you all of my incredible experience and where I take my new direction and look and feel of this project. And I'll be passing that all on to you. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members, and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.